0: Hello folks, Tim here, doing a bit of a Monday morning re-record of the sermon from last night in church Uh, We had some technical difficulties, so you can go ahead and open up to Acts chapter 27 What we're looking at this week is the classic, dramatic, survival at sea event Where the Apostle Paul is attempting to sail across the Mediterranean But hits a raging storm and finds himself shipwrecked on an island uh, it almost reads like a plot to a feature film, um, a little bit of Gilligan's Island, or at least the intro to Gilligan's Island, slash Perfect Storm, slash castaway. Uh, it, it's a horrific, traumatic event, and if you're planning on going sailing around the Greek islands anytime soon, don't read chapter 27 of Acts. You'll probably put your trip on hold. Um, but open it up there with me at the moment and what you'll find is that we get a really detailed account that um, reads like a travel journal and that's partly because Luke, the author here, um, was traveling with Paul on this journey and experienced all of this with him. Um, and there's a lot of detail here and I actually trust that that detail is given to us so that we would, in some sense, experience this with them. It, it, we would experience some of the trauma and the panic and ultimately we would experience the, how, how, you can, how you can trust in God and that's, that's where we're going to land um, today. We're going to land by focusing on the character of our God being the one who is faithful and trustworthy. Um, you might even want to Google search um, for a map of Paul's journey where he gets shipwrecked and um, there's, there's a bunch there and that will probably help you follow along these first bunch of verses. Um, so you can locate the, you know, where they're heading up and down the coast and where, why they stop in certain ports. Um, so Google search that if you want. Pull it up on your phone or your computer and have a little look. It'll help you follow through these first few verses. And that's what we're going to do. We're just going to walk through them and attempt to experience this journey that Paul has um, attempting to get to Rome. Uh, verse 1 there in chapter 27. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy... So Paul's needing to get to Italy um, to get to Rome because um, he's made his appeal to Caesar and um, he needs to stand before Caesar. Um, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over uh, were handed over to a centurion named Julius who belonged to the imperial regiment. Um, so this is the time obviously in the ancient world where there are no aeroplanes, there are no trains, there are no motor cars, um, you couldn't even jump in a in a powered boat to, or ship to get somewhere. You needed to jump on, a, jump on a, one of those old-fashioned boats that's um, under the power of wind, and you needed to brave the elements to get anywhere. And so travel in the ancient world by ship was, was fraught with danger, and so people typically didn't travel for holidays. Um, you only traveled if you had to. It took a long time, and it was very dangerous, but, but that, what's happening here is Paul needs to get to Rome. He's made his appeal. Um, so that he can defend himself before Caesar. And um, as a prisoner, he's being transported in that direction. Um, You see there in verse 3, it says, um, so they head out from Jerusalem, you know, Caesarea. If you've got a map in front of you, it's probably down the the bottom right-hand corner um, in in the south there, Jerusalem. They head out from um, Caesarea there, and they head just straight north up the coast. And their first stop is they pull in, it says they landed at Sidon and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends that they might provide for his needs. So they're for a little stop at Sidon. And then they've actually got a plan to kind of head out across the open ocean, um, which gets um, diverted a little bit because the winds are against them. Um, verse four, from from there they put out to sea again and pass to the lee of Cyprus because the winds... Um, were against us, so they're obviously heading on planning, planning to head around the other side of the island. But the winds push them to the lee of Cyprus, um, which is also called Crete. This island you know it's, it's called two different things there, and so they so they head end up heading further north. And verse five there, when we sailed across the open ocean, so, sorry, across the open sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra, in 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 Cili, in in lycia sorry about that um, and in in verse six there it says the centurion found an alexandrian ship heading for italy and put us on board so they pull into myra um, and it's there that they change ships they find one that's heading to italy um, and they change over to that and then and then we see what happens next verses seven and eight um, it says we made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off Snidus. When the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the lee of Crete opposite Salmon. Um, we moved along the coast with great difficulty and came to a place called Fairhavens near the town of um, Lycia. So they're getting knocked around by the wind, not being able to head in the direction that they want to head in. Um, and so they end up finding this little, this little port off Um, the island of Crete and um, it's called Fairhaven and they just docked there for a moment Um, but you read on and you see what's happened it says verse 8 we moved along the coast with great difficulty oh yeah that's to that place and then look at verse 9 much time had been lost and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the day of atonement that little reference there to the day of atonement is to help us locate what time in the year this was um, the Day of Atonement was around October, so what this means is that they're heading into winter because it's the Northern Hemisphere. And if you know anything about um, this area um, of the Mediterranean heading into winter, you, you, you might know that it's, it's, it's the wrong time to sail. Um, it's, it's just kind of common sense that that's when the horrific wind and weather pick up and no one goes sailing during that time. Um, it's the same, obviously the same today. No one goes sailing around the, the Mediterranean, um, in the nor- which is in the Northern Hemisphere this time of year. Um, it's dangerous. You don't go there. Um, and so you, you see it says Paul warned them, um, Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to the ship and cargo and to our own lives. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and the owner of the ship. Um, since the harbour was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided they should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. Uh, this was a harbour in Crete, facing both southwest and northwest. So they decide, probably for financial reasons, um, to keep travelling further along the island of Crete to find a better port to winter in, which is to pull into and spend, you know, the months of winter. There And so um, they don't listen to Paul's advice about the danger They want to find a better port Which is going to be better for uh, everything they've got on board And um, so they attempt to head to this other port um, Called Phoenix Look at verse 13 When a gentle south wind began to blow They saw their opportunity So they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete So remember this is the time before weather forecasting They wake up in the morning, they lick their finger, they feel like there's the right kind of wind blowing and so off they head not knowing that that right around the corner is is your classic um, shocking wind um, during the time of winter, which is the nor'easter. Look at verse 14, before very long, a wind of hurricane force um, called the nor'easter swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind. So we gave way to it and were driven along. As we passed to the lee of a small island called Corda, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. So the men hoisted it aboard. hoisted it aboard. Then they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together because they were afraid that they would run aground on the sandbars of Sirtis. They lowered the sea anchors and let the ship be driven along. Look at verse 18. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. Now, when you start throwing the ship's tackle overboard, you're throwing away your ability to ever be able to sail the boat again so you you can see what's going through their mind. Um, They're not thinking about sailing and steering anymore. They're just trying to think about how they keep this boat afloat. Verse 20, when neither the sun nor the stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. So, so everyone on board is thinking we're gone. We're dead. It's all over. Uh, what a dreadful feeling. Maybe you've been in a situation where you've found yourself in a situation where you've thought, I'm going to die. Um, Everyone on the boat was thinking this. Everyone except Paul, that is. And in verse 21, you see what Paul does. After they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves and, or da- damage and loss. So <laughs> the first thing Paul thinks to do is to stand up and say, Hey, I told you so. (laughs) You should have listened to my warning. Now, that would have been a hard thing for them to hear. Um, But Paul had more than simply, I told you so, to say. You read on, look at verse 22. Uh, He says, but now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. So Paul is actually really confident that they're not going to die. And he stands up before them and preaches to them effectively and says, Hey, keep up your courage. No one's going to die. The ship's going to get banged up, but we are all going to survive. Now, how does Paul know that? Why is he so confident that they're all going to survive? Well, verse 23, Paul says, Last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve, we will come back to that little description in a minute, stood before me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul, you must stand trial before Caesar and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up. So so Paul says, keep up your courage, men. I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. So, yeah, they're going to run aground. The the ship's going to get banged up. But Paul says to them, you're all going to survive. All of you who stay with me in this, because God has made a promise to me that I'm going to trust. He's made a promise that I'm going to get to Rome and I'm going to witness up there before Caesar. So there's Paul saying, it's OK, everyone. we're not going to die. And Paul believes the word of God that has come to him. Now, the journey continues. Um, verse 27 Um, On the 14th night, we were still being driven along the Adriatic Sea. So they're right out in the open ocean, just being driven along um, by the winds, when about midnight, the sailors sense that they were approaching an island. So they start dropping down um, instruments to take soundings of how deep it is. And they can see it's getting shallower and shallower. And the sailors know that that means they're approaching land. And the sailors actually know that that means they're probably going to run aground and all. that. they still think they're going to die. So the sailors attempt to let down the lifeboats to try to escape and do the sneaky, get away from the ship. But they get caught and told to pull the Pull the, um, pull the boats back up and stay with the crew. Um, you get that in verse 30, in an attempt to escape the ship, they tried to let down the lifeboats, but then Paul says in verse 31, um, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboats and they let it drift away. You need to stay on the boat, Paul says. We need to stay together and trust in the promise that God has made. Um, verse 33 to 36, Paul actually speaks to them all again and actually repeats the promise again. Um, just before dawn, so they've been two weeks at sea, it's, it's heavy. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you've been in constant suspense and you've gone without food and you haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food, you need it to survive not one of you will lose a single hair from his head so there's repeating the promise again and verse 35 he says after he said this he took some bread and he gave thanks to God and broke it in front of them and they began to eat and they were all encouraged and they ate some food and verse 37 says altogether there were 276 of us on board now i'm not sure what size ship you're picturing but 276 people on board. This is a large ship. Uh, That's a lot of people. Uh, There's a lot of lives at stake here. This is a huge exercise. Um, And soon as they expected, they run aground. Um, You can pick that up in verse 41. Um, The ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. Now they'd spotted a beach in the distance and they were trying to get to the beach, but they hit a sandbar before they got there. The bow stuck fast and would not move. And the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding surf. And so, yeah, so the nose of the ship is stuck on a sandbar. The tail of the ship is actually getting beaten up by the waves. And the waves are so big and so powerful that it's smashing the boat to pieces. So we're talking about some big surf here off the coast of Malta uh, because of this crazy hurricane Winter nor'easter blowing. So the ship is actually coming to pieces. So they need to make a decision, and the decision is to actually just tell everybody who can swim to swim and everyone else to jump overboard and grab hold of something. You can see halfway through verse 41 there, it, it says, The um, who is it? It's the centurion ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. So if you can swim, which not many people in the ancient world could do, he said, dive in, swim to shore, which would have been pretty scary. And he says, the rest of us were to get there on planks or on other pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached the land safely. It's a miracle that everyone gets there. Um, but do you pick up on how they get there, how the, the majority of them get there? They pick up planks of wood from the ship and they coast in towards the shore with the waves to safety. Now, look, uh, I don't know if I'm reading into things here, but my ears prick up as a surfer. Um, I find myself thinking, hey, what's, what's just happened here? Um, as a kid, I was always hunting for verses in the Bible about surfing. And I, I think this might be one of them. <laughs> Paul and all the boys are clinging to planks of wood and catching waves in towards the shore. Now, you know, everybody thought that it was the Hawaiians that invented surfing. But I'm going to go out on a limb here and say, no, it was Paul and, and all the people on board this ship that first surfed into the shore. Some of them lying down on pieces, maybe some of them stood up, who knows. Um, But there you go, that's how they got into the shore. Yeah, I'm saying that tongue in cheek, you know that, but um, it's interesting, it's interesting. Um, And when they arrive on land, you know, they discover it's the island of Malta and they're actually cared for well by the natives on shore and they spend a few months there. Recovering, fixing the boat, and then they head off again. And you see in chapter 28 that Paul ends up getting all the way to Italy, to Rome, um, to testify before Caesar. So what God promises he will do happens. And so really the big idea when you step back from this passage after you kind of go through the trauma of the event and um, what Paul is clinging to, really the big idea um, is to is to see something very specific about the character of our God, and that is that he is trustworthy. If he makes a promise, he keeps it. He's faithful to his word. If he says it, he will do it. And here he makes a very clear promise to Paul, you will reach Rome. He says it back in chapter 23, verse 11, just as you have testified here in Jerusalem, so you will testify in Rome. And here in this chapter, chapter 27, verse 24, he, he says again, you will stand trial before Caesar. So God's made a very clear promise to Paul that he's going to make it to Rome. And then sure enough, against all the odds of the opposition from people and opposition from nature and storm, God gets Paul all the way to Rome. You know, his sovereign power, he he works providentially in and through everything that's happening here um, to actually get done what he said he would do. And th- this is the thing we need to understand about God. He, he will not go back on his word. God, God actually cannot go back on his word. If you're gonna ask the question, is there anything impossible for God to do? Well, the answer is yes. It's impossible for God to act contrary to his nature or his character. And if a key part of his nature and character is to be completely trustworthy and faithful, then it's impossible for a faithful, trustworthy God to fail at keeping his word. It's impossible for God to be faithless. It's impossible for him to fail. He cannot but keep his word. It's who he is. Unlike us, who sometimes make promises or have intentions and despite our best efforts feel the need to retract or back out of what we said we'd do because it's got hard or we feel like it's impossible, God does not do that. He sticks to what he says and always does what he says. So can you see in this event the trustworthiness of God the faithfulness of God um, and 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 can you see that he's worthy of your trust uh, Paul can but Paul seems to be really confident to actually just believe entirely and stand on God's word and this is how you see Paul responding to the trustworthiness of God and th- there's two things I'll point out here how does Paul respond to God being trustworthy? Well, Paul entrusts himself to God and Paul clings to the promise. So let's look at those two things. First of all, Paul entrusts himself to God. I mean, that makes sense, doesn't it? Linguistically, even if God is trustworthy, then what you can do is entrust yourself to him. Because if he's trustworthy, then you're in safe hands. So you can actually hand yourself to him, which is what Paul does. And the language of verse 23, where Paul describes God, and in, 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 in actually just mentioning God, um, he gives a description of God's character by, by saying that the God to, to whom I belong and who I will serve. Um, that's Paul giving language to him, him entrusting himself to God. He, he says, this is the God to whom I belong. It's not just a God who I think is okay. It's not just a God who I kind of know and believe in. It's a God to who I belong to. You know, Paul's saying, This is the God who I say, I'm his. You know, I, I hand over ownership of myself and I entrust myself to the one who is trustworthy. And I will serve him. Yeah? He owns me. And I'm happy to be owned by him because he's trustworthy. See how Paul just entrusts himself to God and stays confident in God even in the midst of chaos. It doesn't mean he just sits back and does nothing. He's still quite active. He, he trusts that God is going to save them, like he says he will. But God, but Paul still actually speaks to the sailors, um, you know, about doing what they can to you know make wise choices and eat food and um, you know stay with the ship and you know so he's he still has, he still stays active. He doesn't just sit on his laurels, but he's trusting that God's going to pull off what he says. Um, yeah. So there's Paul entrusting himself to God. There's his first response, and part of God, Paul entrusting himself to God is to actually just, you know, just to cling to that promise that God made, especially when things are looking bad. You know? And that's the situation here. Like all hope is lost. And everyone else is thinking it's over, but Paul trusts what God says. And it it gives Paul composure in the moment so that he can stand and calmly speak and break bread and encourage people to eat. Um, It's quite phenomenal, the composure that Paul has got here, the confidence that he's got in God's promise, even though everything else is telling him it's not going to happen. And that's one thing to notice here about God's promise in a sense. like he, God's promise was not a smooth road to Rome. Um, God could have promised that and he, he could have stilled the storm if that was his intention. Um, but it was clear that you know, God was actually intending a rocky, stormy road to Rome for Paul. Um, and that actually might be what you're experiencing right now. You're, you're in the middle of a storm. You know, you're you're in the middle of some chaos, um, and you're kind of relating to what Paul and everyone is experiencing in this situation because you feel like you're going through something right now. Um, It's worth asking yourself the question: if you're in the middle of chaos right now, how do you cope in the middle of chaos? But because some of us, maybe all of us, to a level, will kind of lack a bit of composure. You know, when things are going bad, you find yourself you know freaking out on some level. You know, Even if it's just a minor irritation or maybe it's a major thing, you just find yourself going, this should not be, this can't be right, um, this shouldn't be happening. And you, you might even turn your attention to God and say, how can this be your plan for me? Why are you allowing this to happen? This can't be what you intend. And and you might even be thinking that way because subtly you, you, you've you adopted like, uh, or you, you've come to think that God's promise to you is... Is is that his plan is to bring you good things, and to prosper you. And 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 maybe you're you're thinking, well, no, 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 the best is yet to come. My breakthrough's just around the corner. And so, so what is this chaos? This can't be from God. This can't be part of His plan. This can't be what He'd be intending. And you freak out, and you turn, and you and you and you're bitter towards God, maybe, or just a version of that. And just as I mentioned that, it is really important for us to slow down and take time here considering what God has promised, you know, because this is where problems come into the Christian life. If you start holding God to a promise that he hasn't actually made to you, you can imagine that's where that's where issues are going to come in. If you go holding God to words that he hasn't actually spoken directly to you. So, so here is a promise that's made to the Apostle Paul, that he's going to get Paul to Rome. Would it be okay to read this scripture and come to the conclusion one day that you feel like, well, this is for you and, and, and you're intending to travel overseas? Maybe you're, you want to get to Rome and you see this is a sign the Lord's going to get you there safely. You know, is it right for you to claim that this is a promise that God will get you to Rome? You might say, oh, of course not. Don't be silly. That's not it's for put the Apostle Paul. Um, And yet I think Christians do this often, maybe in a more subtle sense, but we grab hold of promises that have been made to other people. And apply them directly to us. And it's a real issue, because if you go claiming a promise that wasn't made to you, and then when it doesn't happen, you turn on God and walk away from him. That's carnage, and I've got to say I've seen it. I've seen it too many times, and it's an absolute tragedy because you 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 will you will turn on God if if you think He's made a promise to you and it's not happening. Um, and you know one of the classic promises that New Testament Christians claim uh, that God has directly made towards us um, is Jeremiah twenty nine twenty nine, and maybe this is actually a you know a favourite passage of yours. It might even be something that you've really kind of clung to for many years. And I'm I'm, I'm sorry to do this, but the question you want to ask is, has this promise been made directly to you? Jeremiah 29, 29 is that one that says, and this is just one example of many that I could go to. It's the promise that God makes where he says, I know the plans that I have for you, plans to prosper you and not harm you, plans to bring hope and a future for you. Uh, And and they're beautiful words. But the question is, has God made that promise to you and I today? And the answer is no. God made that promise at a particular point in history to a particular group of people. He he made that promise to his people when they were in exile in Babylon. He made that promise to his people under the old covenant. And the promise was in regards to how he was going to bring them back out of exile to the promised land where they would experience rest again and prosperity again. Physical blessing was tied to a lot of God's promises in the Old Testament that he made to his Old Testament people. That's who the promise was made to. If you go applying a promise like that directly to yourself, you, you're going to be making a mistake and you're going to find yourself um, in all kinds of trouble at some point. Because God does not promise that his plan for you is to always prosper you and never bring you harm. In fact, in the New Testament, he'll say, no, no, uh, suffering is going to be part of this life. If you're going to apply Old Testament promises, there is a way to do it. You just got to do it through Jesus. You've got to bring it through the Jesus filter or the Jesus lens, whatever you want to call it. Because really all Old Testament promises do find their yes and amen, their fulfillment in Jesus. And so the promises do end up come to us, but they come to us through Jesus. And typically what happens to most of the Old Testament promises, particularly the one that's that promised physical blessing, is they become for us now in Christ, spiritual blessings. So Ephesians 1, um, we have in Christ now every spiritual blessing. Yeah? So my point is um, if if you grab and hold of a promise in the scriptures, make sure you apply it carefully and properly. We do you do want to ask the question well, well what promises do apply to me directly as a New Testament? Christian living this side of Jesus in history are there promises that are directly for us and the answer to that one is yes and you want to know what they are and cling to them and not apply directly promises that are not for you so if we're going to ask that question well what are the promises of the New Testament what are the promises that come directly to us Um, there's a number of places you can go I think one of the best places to go and this is we'll spend the last few minutes just now um, is in the book of Romans and so if you're in Acts 27 just flick over a few pages to the book of Romans and come to chapter 8 of the book of Romans which is where you get one of the the, the, the clearest expressions of you know the, the promise uh, the promises of God applied directly to us in Christ Jesus um, and chapter 8 is a oh it's an excellent chapter if you haven't spent much time digging around in chapter 8 You you might want to spend time camping out there because um, you can spend the rest of your Christian life camping out in chapter 8 of Romans. It's absolutely wonderful. What I'm going to do is I'm going to point out three features of the promise that comes to us directly as New Testament Christians, or three promises. They're, They're kind of connected and they're kind of separate. It's in regards to what's happened in the past, what's happening in the present, and what's going to happen in the future. And I'll split the promises or the features of the promise up into three things from chapter eight of Romans. Um, First of all, there's no condemnation. Secondly, God is making you more like Jesus. And thirdly, nothing will separate you from him. Those three things. Let's have a look. Start in verse one there of chapter eight of Romans. It says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now notice this promise is not for everyone. It's just for those who are in Christ Jesus, um, which is what a Christian is. whos someone who's put their trust in Jesus such that he has come to live in you by his spirit and you are now included in him. You're now in Christ. Um, And and as a Christian now being in Christ, here's, here's a promise you can cling to. There is no condemnation for you now. Though your sin is real... And you have rejected God in small ways and big ways. And you've rebelled against God in small ways and big ways. And and though your sin is real and and is utterly deserving of condemnation. That condemnation that you deserve has been taken away and placed upon God's Son. Who has been judged in your place and has taken the punishment of your sin. He's taken your condemnation. So now you have no condemnation. Though your sin is real, God has removed the punishment for your sin and the slavery to sin and thrown it away. This is is a a really important promise um, to cling to on a daily basis as you become more and more aware of your sinfulness in this life, which is part of God's grace to you to help you to become aware of your sin. Um, particularly in moments where you're acutely aware of your sin and even maybe feeling overwhelmed by a sin or sins that you continue to do, it's so important to actually be able to come back to this promise and say to yourself, there's actually no condemnation for me. Though I've done it again, though I've done something new, though I'm realizing I'm way more sinful than I ever thought, in Christ... My reality is that there is no condemnation for me I will not be treated as my sins deserve that is phenomenal that is phenomenal so cling to that promise that comes directly to you um, as you are in Christ Um, I'll give you the second part or the second promise or whatever Um, that is that um, God is conforming you. He's making you more like Jesus. Look at verse 28, which is, this is a, this is a really kind of famous promise that um, many Christians know and claim. However, it is often quite misunderstood. So let's make sure we get the, the proper meaning of this promise. So verse 28, it says, um, We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. So here's the promise. God works in all things for the good of those who love him. Again, it's a promise just for Christians. It's for those who have been, those who love him, those who are called according to his purpose. And the promise is that God is at work in all things. And all things is actually focusing on all hardships and carnage and suffering. Because that's the context of chapter 8. A creation that's groaning under the weight of sin. And it's in the midst of all of the carnage, all of the pain, all of the hardship of life. Here's the promise. God is at work in all of that for the good of those who love him. It's a beautiful promise, isn't it? So you can trust that in the middle of carnage that's all around you and happening to you, that God is at work for your good. Now, here's what we really need to clarify clearly. What is your good? Because we can define all kinds of goods that we want to happen in our life, can't we? And often the the first thing we think of that's good for us is that the hardship would go away, is that carnage would kind of disappear and get sorted out. And and the the good, you know, know, a a peaceful and happy um, situation would be restored and the circumstance would be removed and blessings would come and good, practical, you know, we can think of all kinds of good things that we want to have happen in our life. Is that what this promise is? Don't worry, hang in there. It's all going to be good again soon. Because actually, that's actually what most people think this promise is. Um, you know, uh, it's, it's the promise that kind of says, uh, "Don't worry, something good's going to come from this." You know, um, you know, your breakthroughs just around the corner. Uh, it'll all get resolved. Hang in there. But friends, that is not what this is saying. You need to define what your good is. And it's clearly defined here in the passage if you just read the very next verse. It, and, and it's not just whatever you want good to be. There's a particular kind of good that God says is your good, your ultimate good. Look at verse 29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined, and here it is, here's your good, to be conformed to the image of his son that's your good to be conformed to the image of his son which means to be shaped to be more like Christ to, to be made to be more like Jesus so here's the promise God is at work in every hard thing to make you more like Jesus the promises in regards to what God is doing in you, in your character, to make you more like his son. The promise is not in regards to the circumstance and situation and all the other good things we'd like to get resolved. Now they might get resolved and God's the giver of good things. So if they do, that's awesome and he's brought blessing upon blessing for you. But this promise is not in regards to all the good things you might want. It's in regards to the ultimate good thing, that God has in mind for you. And that is in regards to your character. That's in regards to who you are becoming. And this is the promise. God's going to make you more like Jesus. He's going to be shaping you to be like his son. That's the promise. And that is your ultimate good. And you will see this clearly if you don't now. You'll see it clearly at the end of life as you look back you'll see that the best thing that could have ever happened for you um, is who you became as a person, that you became more like Jesus. The more like Jesus you become, the more you'll be able to offer others around you and, and, and the more you'll be able to live in a way that's honouring to God and actually um, joyful for yourself. But this is your ultimate good. So you can trust right now if you're in the middle of a storm, and, and, and you're finding it very hard to believe that this could, that God could intend anything for you in this. It, maybe you've been in a storm for a long time and, and you're thinking, I just need to get out of this. This just needs to disappear. What is God doing? Well, I wonder if you might be able to wonder and ask the question, what, what might God be doing in me through this? How might God be intending to shape me through this? And if you start asking questions like that and wondering along those lines, you've got the opportunity then to see things that God might be doing in you um, and actually come to trust him, that he knows what he's doing. And the hard reality is, it's the hardships that actually shape you more than the good times. You know, If only I could become more like Jesus through God, Good time after good time. But the truth is, it's actually in the hardship that God does all his work. Yeah, It's in the fire. It's in the storm. And this is the place to trust God, that he's making you more like Jesus. Can you do that? The third part of the promise, and I'll finish on this one, right at the end there of chapter 8, uh, Paul says, um, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons neither the present nor the future or powers, neither height nor depth or anything else in all of creation. All of the bad things that could come from me all from any direction. He says, I'm convinced that none of that will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. So here's the third promise or the third part of the promise. Nothing will separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. You, you will never lose God. He will hold on to you. Nothing that comes your way can snatch you out of his hand. He will hold you and keep you and you will remain in his love until the final day and then live forever in his love. That's an incredible promise. And these promises really are in regards to, we can cling to these in the middle of hardship. You know, but When you look back in the past at your sins, trust this, there's no condemnation. When you're in the midst of a storm right now and you don't know what's happening, you can trust that God is at work making you more like Jesus in this. And as you look into the future, you don't need to worry that you're going to lose God because He is able to hold on to you And nothing is going to separate you from his love. These, my friends, are the promises of God that come directly for us in Christ Jesus. And I want to compel you to cling to these promises. Understand them well, but cling to these ones. And know that your God is trustworthy. He is faithful. You can entrust yourself to him and cling to his promises. There you go. Hope you found that helpful. See you soon.